0: Chapter One of the Heart's Kingdom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. The Heart's Kingdom by Maria Thompson Davis. Chapter One The World and the Flesh. A beautiful woman is intended to create a heaven on earth and she has no business wasting herself making imaginary excursions into any future paradise. The present is her time for action, and again, Charlotte, I ask you to name the day upon which you intend to marry me,' said Nicole's powers, as he stood lounging in the broad window of Aunt Clara's music-room, and gazing down into the subdued traffic of Upper Madison Avenue. "'I wish you had never taken me across that ferry, and into that room crowded with redolent humanity, to hear an absurd little man string together vivid, gross words about religion, words that made me tingle all over,' I answered, as I threw my cloak on a chair, lifted my hat from my head, and sat down on the seat before the dark old piano. "'I think religion is the most awful thing in the world, and I am as afraid of it as I am of—of death.' I'm going home to my father. Oh, don't be afraid of it. Religion is the most potent form of intoxication known to the human race. That's why I took you over to hear the little baseball player. I wanted you to get a sip. But don't let it go to your head. And Nichols mocked me with a soft tenderness in his smile. Well, it frightened me, and I don't like it. I'm going home to my father, and forget it. I reiterated with a kind of numbness upon me, the like of which I have never before experienced. "'I'll protect you from any religious danger just as effectively as Judge Powers. I'm younger, slightly, than he, but I know just as many of the wiles of the world and the flesh as he does, and maybe a few more,' Nichols assured me, with a flash in his dark eyes, that was both wicked and humorous, as well as very delightful. "'And the devil, too!' "'But you don't understand. I must go home to my father,' I answered still again. "'You don't understand yourself,' returned Nichols. "'There are strange hieroglyphics imprinted on every woman's heart, and a man can read only an unconnected word here and there, when he can get his flashlight thrown into the depth, if he dares adventure into her life at all. I feel that I take my own life in my hands, when I allow you to talk to me as I am allowing you to-night.' how do you know that those hieroglyphics might not mean the salvation of the world if she could spell them out herself or some great and good person took a steady lamp and went down into her heart and it takes a very wicked man to read a woman good men are blinded by them and stumble Nichols assured me as he came over stood beside me and ran his long slender artist's fingers up and down the keys of the piano which evoke a strange diabolical sort of harmony from them. "'I understand about it all, so please come tell me you'll marry me.' This time his arms almost encircled me, but I slipped between them as he laughed at me with his adorable pagan charm. "'No, Nichols, that would be an easy and, and delightful way out, but I am really frightened, down in some queer part of my anatomy that lies between my breastbone and my spinal column.' Something is stirring in my heart and I'm afraid of it. I've got to get out in the wilderness and fight with it. Take it out on me, offered Nicholls with a laugh that was both wistful and provoking. No, I've got a home panic and I must go. Then when do I get my answer from what is left of you after the battle? I'll let you know when to come and get it. Under the roof of the poplars. I answered him from the doorway and the very next morning I went down into the Harpeth Valley, driven I knew not by what, nor to what. I only knew that I felt full of a living, smothering flame, and I was sure that it was best to let it burst forth in my ancestral abiding place. I was born of a man, who was the most evolved brain in the Harpeth Valley, who has been a drunkard for twenty years, and of a very beautiful and haughty woman, whose own mother, to the day of her death, shouted at Methodist love-feasts. It is any wonder that when I was tried by fire I burned as the cracklings of thorns under a pot. "'How could you set that ridiculous little Methodist meeting-house on the very doorstep of my garden, father?' I demanded, as I stood tall and furious before him, in the breakfast-room on the morning after my return home, from my winter in the east with Aunt Clara. "'Cousin Nichols has spent many months out of three years on the plans of restoration for that garden, and he is coming down soon to sketch and photograph it, to use in some of his commissions. What shall I, what will you, say to him, when he finds that the vista he kept open for the line of Paradise Ridge has been cut off by that pile of stones, to house the singing of psalms? And as I waited, I had a feeling of being relentlessly pursued.' by something I didn't understand.' "'Madam,' returned father, "'with a dignity he always used with me, when he encountered one of my rages. You will find that the chapel does not in any way interfere with Nicholl's carefully planned view. Gregory Goodloe spent many days of thought in seeking to place it so that it would not intrude itself upon your garden, and he built his parsonage completely out of you.' though it gives him only one large southern window to his study, and only northern ones to his bedroom. "'Does the creature also sleep and eat, and have his being right there behind my hollyhocks?' I demanded, and my rage began to merge into actual grief, which in turn threatened to come to the surface in hot tears. "'Now, Charlotte, my daughter,' father was beginning to say with soothing in his voice, instead of belligerence, that from my youth up, had always just preceded my floods of tears. Dabney, the shrivelled black butler, who had always devotedly sympathised with my exhibitions of temperament, to which he had, from my infancy, given the name of Tantrums, set a platter of fried chicken before father's place at the damask, and silver-spread old table by the window, through which the morning sun was shining genially. Then, with a smile as broad and genial as that of the sun, he drew out my chair from behind the ancestral silver coffee-iron which was puffing out clouds of fragrant steam, Breakfast a served hornycheel he crooned soothingly, and your mama do put the liver wing right leggin your fork. Dabney had many times stemmed my floods with choice food and was trying his favorite method of pacification. I faltered and wavered at a temptation. I was hungry just wait until you see goodloe and talk it over with him father says as he seized the advantage of my wavering and seated himself opposite me as dabney pushed in my chair and whisked the cover of the silver sugar bowl and presented one of his old willow ware cups for father's two lumps and a dash of cream i asked him to see him you don't expect me to discuss Nicols and my garden with an ignorant, bucolic Methodist minister, who probably doesn't know a honeysuckle from a jimson weed, do you?' I asked, with actual rage, rising again above the tears, as I literally dashed the cream into his cup, and deluged the boiling coffee down upon it so that a scalding splatter peppered my hand. "'I never want to see or hear, or speak to or about him. I'll build a trellis as high as his church, run evergreen honeysuckle on it, and go my way in an opposite direction from his. I'll-just here I observed consternation spread over Dabney's black face, then communicate itself to father's distressed countenance as he glanced out the window. Quickly he pushed his morning julep behind the jar of roses in the centre of the table, while Dabney flung a napkin over the silver pitcher with frost on its side and mint nodding over its brim. And then, as I was about to pour my own coffee, and launch forth on another tirade on the subject of my neighbour, I heard a rich tenor voice singing just outside the window in the garden, beside the steps that led down from the long windows in the dining-room to the old flagstone walk. Nichols and I had searched through volumes of dusty antique prints, to see just how we wanted that walk to lead out to the sunken garden beyond the tall old poplars. I also saw the handle of a rake or hoe in action across the window landscape and heard unmistakable sounds of a vigorous gardening. I rose to my feet with battle in my eyes, and then stopped perfectly still and listened unwillingly but compelled drink to me only with thine eyes. "'And I will pledge with mine,' were the words that floated in at the window on the fragrant morning sunbeams, in a voice of the most penetrating tenderness I had ever felt break against my heartstrings. "'I—I—' I, "'He sometimes demolishes a—a few—weeds.' Father faltered, while Dabney ducked his cotton-wool old head and slipped out of the door. You allow him to work in my garden and—' I faltered, just recovering from the impact of the words of my favourite song of songs hurled at me by the unseen enemy, when I was interrupted by his appearance in the open door and we stood facing each other. I am a woman who has very decided taste about the biological man. I know just how I want the creatures to look, and I haven't much interest in one that isn't at least of the type of my preferred kind. Because I am very tall and broad and deep-bosomed, and vivid and high-coloured, and have strong white teeth that crunch up about as much food in twenty-four hours as most field-hands consume, and altogether I am very much like one of the most vigorous of Sorolla's painting, that is the probable pathological reason I have always preferred, an evolved whistler, masculine nocturne, that retreats to the limits of my comprehension and then beckons me to follow. All other men I have grouped beyond the border of my feminine nature and sought to waste no thought upon them. It was a shock to come suddenly in my own breakfast room face to face with a type of man I have never before met. The enemy was astonishingly large and lithe and distinctly resembled one of the big gold colored lions that live in the wilds of the Harpeth Mountains, out beyond Paradise Ridge. His head, with its tawny thatch that ought to have wavered majestically, but which was sleek and curious to the point of worldliness, was poised on his neck and shoulders, with a singularly strong line that showed through a silk soft collar, held together by an exquisitely worldly amethyst's silk scarf, which, it was a shock to see, matched glints from eyes back under his heavy gold brows with what appeared to be extreme sophistication after the shock of the tie the loose grey london worsted coat and trousers made only a passing impression and from my involuntary summary of the whole surprising man which had taken less than an instant my dazed brain came back and was held and concentrated by the beauty of the smile that flooded out over me in welcome after my father's hurried introduction. The Reverend Mr. Gregory Goodloe, my daughter Charlotte, father announced, as he rose and waved in my direction a hand that was cordial to the point of bravado. "'I'm so glad you came in time to see your crocuses and anemones, Miss Powers. The jaguar said as he took my hand in his. Dabney has let me help him hand-weed them, and they are a glory, aren't they?' While he spoke, he still held my hand, and I was still too dazed to regain possession of it. Father saved the situation. Sit down, sit down, parson, and let Charlotte give you a cup of coffee while it is on the simmer, he urged, with hasty hospitality, as if intent upon effectively bottling me up, at least for the immediate present. She was just pouring my cup. Will you say grace before I take my first sip? was the high explosive he further proceeded to hurl in my face. And as he spoke, I sank dumbly into my chair, and helplessly bowed my head, to a ceremony so obsolete in the world from which I had come, that I felt as if I was slipping back into the days of the pioneer, when the customs of life were still primitive and dictated, by emotion rather than mental science. And there, with father's concealed mint julep, right against his interlaced fingers the mountain lion bowed his crested head and involved me in prayer for the first time since chapel service in my college days the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof for which we give thanks thy children with lord jesus amen amen mumbled father as if from the depths of embarrassment, and against my will, as it were, a queer sort of croon of an echo came from my own throat. Also that was the first time I had ever heard words of prayer under the roof of the poplars. It embarrassed me, and I hated it and the cause of it. The spell which had possessed me since the entrance of the Reverend Goodloe vanished, and the rage that had been in me at the discovery of the intrusion of his chapel and himself upon my life, when I had come home to be free to be wicked, boiled up within me, and then sugared down to a rich and dangerous syrup. While I poured his coffee, I again took stock of him, this time coldly and with deadly intent. The reasons for his entry into my hitherto satisfactory family life, even at breakfast-time, I did not know, any more than I knew the reason for the chapel on the other side of the hollyhocks but I felt that I feared both, and intended to get rid of them. If the enemy had been what one could reasonably expect a young Methodist preacher to be, I would have routed him and his meekness within the hour, and had the chapel moved, to a lot on a side street in town within the week. However, when a hunter comes suddenly upon a harpeth jaguar, he is glad to use his best repeater, and he is careful how he shoots, though if he is very he may tease the lion aloft, with a few nipping shots. I felt suddenly very strong for the fight that I knew was on, though the lion didn't possess that knowledge as yet. Deliberately, I fired a preliminary bullet that seemed to graze Father, though it left the parson unharmed. "'Will you have your mint julep before I pour your coffee, Mr. Goodloe?' I asked, with seemingly careless friendliness." Dabney, put fresh ice in Father's glass, and fill mine and Mr. Goodloe's. "'I was feeling a little under the weather this morning,' said Father hastily, as he set his glass from behind the roast jar upon Dabney's waiter, and motioned it all away from him, thus denying the morning friend of his lifetime. "'I had never drunk a julep before breakfast in my life, only tasted round the frosty edges of Father's, but I held my ground, and held out my glass to Dabney.' who falteringly, almost in terror, took the frosted silver pitcher from the sideboard, and poured me an unusually large draught of the family beverage. "'Will you have yours now, Mr. Goodloe?' I asked again, with still more of the sugared solicitation. "'No, I believe I prefer the coffee. But don't pour it until you have drunk your julep. You know frost is a thing that soon passes. Was the cheerful answer—' though a suspicion of an amethyst glint made me know that the jaguar had at least heard the sip of the bullet i loathed that mixture of ice and sugar and mint and whisky but i had to drink it and it heated me up inside both physically and mentally and took away all the queer dogging fare and because of it i don't remember what else happened at that breakfast except that i wanted to clutch and cling to the warm strong hand that I again found mine in at the time of parting. But I didn't, at least, I don't think I did. After it was taken away from me, I went very slowly up to my room, and again went to bed, mammy carelessly officiating and rejoicing that I was going to nap the steam cars out in my bones. I fell asleep with the continued strains of drink to me only in my airs, wondering if I ought to put it down as insult added to injury, and I woke several hours later to find Letitia Cockrell, one of the dear friends whom many generations had bestowed upon me, sitting on the foot of my bed, consuming the last of the box of marrons with which Nichols had provisioned my journey down from New York. I was glad I had tucked the note that came in the box under the pillow the night before. I trust Letitia, and she is entirely sophisticated, but she has never had a lover, who lives in Greenwich Village, New York, America. "'Is this the open season for two-day hangovers in New York?' she demanded, as she sniffed me suspiciously, at the same time she dimpled and smiled at me. "'No, this is not a metropolitan hangover. It was acquired at breakfast, Letitia,' I answered her, as I sat up and stretched out my bare arms, to give her a good shake and a hug. You may break, you may shatter the glass, if you will, but the scent of the julep will hang round you still. I misquoted, as I drew my niece up into my embrace, and took the last remaining marron. "'Why, Mammy said Mr. Goodlow had breakfast with you. Did you sneak it from the judge, pitcher?' demanded Letitia, as she likewise drew her knees up into her arms, and settled herself against one of the posts on my bed." for the many hours' résumé of our individual existence in which we always indulged upon being reunited after separation. "'I did not,' I answered. "'I drank it before his eyes, and then I don't remember what happened, and I don't care.' "'What?' "'Just that. I never have been drunk, because I never could drink enough. I've always felt that there isn't enough liquid in the world to face me, and I don't like it anyway, but Dabney was so impressed by his worship—' that he poured it double for me before i had breakfast i hope i staggered or swore but i don't think i did the reverend Goodlow can tell you better than i ask him gregory Goodlow oh charlotte that's the point i was coming to letitia just who is this reverend Goodlow that i shouldn't drink a quart of mint julep before him if i want to i would well over a pint of champagne with a mr justice two nights before i left new york and I stopped then, out of courtesy, to one of the generals, whom we expect to defend us from the Kaiser, who is your Gregory Goodlaw? Tell me, o- tell me all about him, unexpurgated and unafraid. Didn't you know about him and the chapel before you came? Latitia inquired cautiously, as if fearing the explosion she felt was sure to result. I did not, I answered. I met him and his chapel and the mint julep all in the same five minutes, and is it any wonder I went down? Go on, tell me the worst of the best. I'm ready. And as I spoke, I settled my pillows comfortably, getting a little thrill from the crumpled letter underneath the bottom one. End of chapter one. Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway. The thirteenth of January, two thousand and twelve.